tomorrow is uh, Memorial Day, 2016. Uh, the sermon today is not about Memorial Day. It's going to be the third in our series that's called uh, The Church and Science. But um, we have something very special in this time, in this place, unique to the history of mankind. We enjoy prosperity, peace, Liberty is unheard of in the chronicle of humanity. But as we know as Christians, humans are fallen. They are forever bellicose. They're fighting about this and that. And so this freedom and this liberty and this prosperity, they come with a grave price. I never served. Um, I have an uncle who served in the Korean War. Uh, thank God he made it through that. It just also happens to be that the people that pay the price so that we can have what we have come from a young demographic. They tend to be younger people. Those are the people that go out on the front lines and uh, do the things that need to be done to protect our borders. Um, and uh, they leave behind um, friends, mom and dad, when they perish as if the sacrifice that they make isn't enough just in and of itself. There's an entire trail of grief that comes with it when a soldier falls. Brothers, sisters, drinking buddies, classmates. Today's sermon is going to be three parts. Uh, the first two parts, I don't, some of my grimace at that. I, the last two sermons, this was commenced. We started this. Uh, the first part was a little bit over a year ago. And uh, I, I went on. I had thought it would be a 25-minute sermon. I went on for almost 50 minutes. I really appreciate it. I said this last time. Everybody hung in there with me. It's a long time to sit there um, and just try to have to take in sometimes some fairly abstruse uh, commentary. And uh, so that was supposed to be two parts. The one since then, I think it was in October, was two parts. And I took like 45 minutes or something like this. But this is a three-parter. The first two parts are going to be very brief. They're just going to recap part one and part two. And the third part, I'm titling um, How You Think. And if you think that's a little too presumptuous, we can call it like How People Think or something. Um, the first part, this is a little over a year ago, um, part one. This was a secular discussion. It's up on the website like all the sermons are. Uh, beautiful website help, uh, that Ben helped create. One of the prettiest websites actually out there. Um, and it was really a secular discussion of science. And the whole thing was motivated by the idea that there's this, I called it, the word I actually used a little over a year ago was hallucinatory. And I completely stick by that. There's this weird perspective that somehow God's word and his creation is somehow in discord with science. And so the approach I wanted to take and, and um, uh, involved a couple theses. And one of the major theses is to dispel this fiction that scientific thinking is new. People think that they point to the Renaissance or they point to the Enlightenment, what they call the Enlightenment, and we'll talk about this in a future sermon. Um, and they say that's when science popped from, up from the ground and now we're, we have scientific thinking, we're enlightened supposedly, and that's completely false. I mean, people 
we have always had scientific thinking. Just look it up in, a, in the dictionary. That's what we did. We just used the dictionary definition of what it means to use scientific thinking. And in the history of mankind, this is how we've survived, is to be scientific. Um, <clears throat> uh, another thesis, which is also important, was the idea that a scientific finding, what we call a scientific some result, an affirmation of, of some particular inquiry or some particular research, they're mutable, they change with, with time, and they can change because um, the original research was faulty, but oftentimes they change because the context under which they were originally re affirmed can change. I mean, the question can change. And it does, it does. And I didn't get, I also said that um, sometimes uh, scientific findings will, in retrospect, uh, appear to be, and I was careful in my words, or I tried to be, that not necessarily superstitious, but superstitious-like. They're like superstitious. I did not give an example. I'll give you an example right now. Um, and it's a four-letter word, diet. D-I-E-T, diet. Uh, okay, part two, part two. Um, in part two, this, we talked about some episodes uh, in the Bible that um, illustrate God's wrath. And we talked, uh, we sort of dissected four of them, and then in conclusion we added a couple others. It seems like a really disparate topic. We talk about science and then we talk about God's wrath. And I didn't say this, but the intention was to just apply some rational thinking to these episodes in the Bible that are commonly viewed by believers and non-believers, actually, as being these just punctuations of God's anger and these sort of outrageous, um, you know, annihilations of entire cities or, um, in particular, individuals for what might be perceived to be a petty act of, or a petty transgression or something. And we sort of unraveled it a little bit. And if you actually look at what's happening... A couple points. One is that civilizations have come and gone for thousands and thousands of years. And people have come and gone, uh, sometimes in, in episodes or uh, events that are much more bloody and brutal than others. Um, so these events that are told to us, conveyed to us through God's word, um, that illustrate or exhibit his wrath are not in, in and of themselves unique, right? These events, events like them, battlefields and um, natural uh, disasters have been happening for thousands of years. And it's, a, it's just a violent world. And it's something, it's something we come into the world and we learn. It's a priori. Um, but we're told in God's word of particular episodes. They're told to us. And so the question is, well, you know, what makes these episodes unique? Like, what was unique about the cities of the valley? What was unique about the Amalekites? Like, why are we told about them? And the point of part two was to simply answer that question. And when we looked into it, hopefully, um, if, if I did a, if I achieved my objective, we realized that when you apply some rational thought that you see the same pattern over and over again. God is giving us the same message. Love your neighbor. Take care of each other. And when people mess that up, or they demonstrate hubris, um, right, we're told that they perish, that these individuals perish. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this too. Um, 
the Bible is instructive, okay? There are some Pauline passages that tell you explicitly that the, that the entire point of Scripture is to instruct, but let alone the fact that they call Jesus rabbi, which means teacher. We know it's instruction. You know, and we have as a good analogy the parent-child relationship. So a parent will tell their child uh, when they're young, maybe two years old or whatever, or they'll, they'll really try to inculcate them with the idea, um, don't run into a street unless, unless you're with an adult or something, right? And the idea is the value that's there is that uh, it's life and limb, because we know the street can be perilous, right? Because there's people flying by, traffic flying by. Um, and so this is a valuable piece of instruction. The child may not necessarily understand that. One of the most maddening things I imagine a parent could experience is when they, they try to get the message across to their child not to go running into the street or enter the street unless they're with an adult. And the child maybe becomes o- over come with uh, curiosity, they may see a friend on the other side of the street who's just gotten a bright new toy, and the child just unthinkingly goes barreling across the street. Well, we know, thank goodness, that every time you cross the street, you've, def- well, you've defied your, your parents' instruction. You, you may not suffer any injury. So, <clears throat> and, that's, and you can imagine, the child violates the instruction, runs to the other side of the street, and, and thank God makes it, okay, and then reaps the reward of being able to play with this bright toy that their friend has. So now they, you've got this positive reinforcement on this behavior that's really deleterious, right? Potentially very harmful. And this is part of the human condition. And so when we see someone like Uzzah, who has a sequence of, of mistakes uh, when they're trying to transport the ark, um, well, and I said this, I've done the exact same thing. I've had hubris. I've tried to take matters into my own hand. I've turned away from God. I'm still here. Uzzah is not. He got zapped, okay? Um, but God, just because you violate an instruction doesn't mean you're going to get the hatchet, okay? That's part of the human condition, and we understand that. Okay, part three, um, how you think or how people think. <clears throat> and I'll just state the thesis. Uh, every facet of modern life, has been systematized. In the modern world, everything is systematized, everything is process-driven, it's governed by rules, regulations, laws, statutes, procedures. And um, to to sort of illustrate this, I I chose a deliberately camp and mundane example. I don't know if that was necessarily a wise decision, but um, just imagine you have uh, some friends coming over and you need to go out and pick up some beer and chips. And so, uh, okay, so you got to go to the grocery store. So, so the whole idea is you got to acquire beer and chips. So you, you decide, okay, you're going to go to the grocery store. you got to get to the grocery store. Uh, so you drive. You drive. you got to navigate the parking lot. You enter the grocery store, and, uh, and you sort of got to decide, do you need a basket? Do you need a cart? And it's like, okay, you'll grab a basket. You grab the basket, and then you go locate the beer. You go locate the chips, put it in the basket. and then. But you can't go out right the way you came in. Uh, where you may not, because that would be larceny. So you have to go through the process of the checkout line. So you got to find a checkout line, and you you want to find the fastest checkout line. So you make your guess. You're there with your basket, uh, and then you want to know: Can I want to put the basket on the conveyor belt? Uh, no, but the person in front of you has a conveyor belt full, and so you got to stand there holding your empty basket. Conveyor belt moves up a little bit, and then, but not quite enough space, and besides the person in front of you hasn't put down a divider, and um, so you can maybe use the intermission to check out the cover of People magazine and make sure you've got your wallet and means of payment and your club card. If you, are you a member of the particular grocery store? You have a club card. Um, 
And so then, oh, then it moves up a little bit more. The, cu- the person in front of you, the customer in front of you, front of you places a divider. Uh, so you're kind of obliged to say thank you. So you say thank you. Uh, but you don't want to say it too lo- soft. You don't want to say it too loud. You say thank you. Just the right volume. And then you put your stuff on the conveyor belt. And then uh, you've got your empty basket. And, and then you, then someone is coming behind you. And so you want to put a divider down for that person. But the divider is, you see one on that thin track on the other side of the conveyor belt. But it's too far to get to without leaning over the other person's food. And so now you've got you can't get to it, so you're gonna you're gonna be on the lookout for a divider. You're still holding the empty empty basket. You want to set the empty basket down, but the person behind you is too close now, so you can't set it on the end of the of the counter. The checkout lane that's adjacent to you is active, so you can't set it over there. So you got to be on a lookout for a place to set down your basket, or possibly hand it off to a checker. And you're still on the lookout for the divider. And uh, and so now, wait, are you going to need a bag? Uh, are you in a city that has a plastic bag band? Uh, do you want a bag? Yeah, you use a bag. Uh, do they have at this grocery store the cheapy uh, paper bags that are going to end up in the recycle bin, or do they offer the good, reusable, heavy plastic bags? You notice that the checker is talking to somebody, somebody, but it's not you. It's the person ahead of you, so you don't respond. Uh, now a divider is available, so you grab the divider, you put it behind your stuff, the person behind you says thanks, and uh, but it's a really soft volume, so you don't really want it. You kind of just kind of nod. You don't want to say anything. And then... Um, and so, uh, uh, do you need smokes? You've got to get smokes. Uh, well, okay, yeah, I need some smokes. And then, so now there's a whole process for that because you don't want to unduly hold up the line. So you've got to try to find a bagger that's in an intermission between doing one thing or the other. And, and then you flag them down and you have them get the cigarettes. And then, uh, and now, okay, so now the checker's talking to someone. It's you. And so uh, it's a salutation. So you return the salutation. The checker tells you that she's finishing up a 10-hour shift. And uh, so you're kind of obliged to offer some sort of reply to that. And uh, so you, but you don't want to say, oh, yeah, boy, that, that's terrible. You know, I, I make a six-figure salary and uh, I can sip wine as I, I work from home. Uh, you want to show some empathy, right? So you say something like, uh, that shower tonight's going to feel extra good. And, uh, and so concurrent with all that, you've got to swipe your club card, swipe your credit card. Wait, do they take the chip now or does it take the, is it the magnetic? Okay, it went through, that's fine. Collect together your stuff. And now you may exit the way you came in and navigate the parking lot and ultimately captain your car back home. Now you have your, your, your beer and chips. All that stuff, with the exception of larceny, that we went through in that really ridiculous and silly and mundane example, the, the whole operation of the procedure of acquiring beer and chips, um, with the exception of larceny, was just merely social, what we call social customs. They were just social customs. There was no real formalized, I didn't introduce formalized rules and regulations. But <clears throat> anyone who owns or operates a motor vehicle in California is governed by Title 13 of the California Code of Regulations. This is a document of about 3 million words comprising about 100,000 rules, regulations, standards, and definitions. And that checker that's finishing up the 10-hour shift is in part governed by OSHA, Occupational Safety Health Administration. Um, And this is governed in part by Title 29 of the Federal Code of Regulations. And this is a document of roughly 1 million words and maybe 40,000, 50,000 rules, regulations, laws, standards, definitions. And those two titles, by the way, are a tiny fraction of the total state level and federal level administration that uh, applies to workers and owners or operators of automobiles. On top of that, the county of Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles, and the individual institutions themselves will have their own canon of adaptations and supplements to these regulations. And 
we are so governed by process and rule and regulation. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. It sounds completely fictitious, but I'm not making this up. A couple of years ago, Harvey Silvergate authored a book in which he argued or calculated that the typical American today uh, could be arrested and con successfully convicted for having committed three felonies each and every day. And so you may think, well, what kind of, if you're not familiar with Harvey Silvergate, what kind of paranoid crackpot would come up with such a conjecture? Um, you know, he, he's a Harvard-educated attorney with over five decades of experience. Surviving in a systematized society requires a very special type of thinking. Uh, this is getting into sort of the psychology and neurology of problem solving. Um, you could also almost call it a type of cognition, and it goes by different names depending particularly on which discipline you come, from which discipline you come. We're going to call it task orientation. There's something called task orientation. It means exactly what you would think. But I want to, I should stress, if you're familiar with it, we're using the term, it's a hyphenated, it's a compound word, task orientation. We're using it in a completely generic way uh, because it's associated with leadership styles and it has particular meanings in particular circles. But we're using task orientation as, as, a, as just a generic term. It's um, uh, linear, like linear thinking, like do A, do B, do C, do D. Um, we can also call it tactical thinking, just tactical thinking is concerned with detail, particular detail, just executing steps like in a recipe or something. There's another way that people can solve problems and it's regarded or another way people can think to keep uh, with the theme of the, this particular section in that sermon um, that is kind of regarded as mutually exclusive in the sense that um, it is commonly believed that you cannot simultaneously, a person cannot simultaneously be task-oriented and the other way that people can think, strategic thinking. Cannot simultaneously be tactical and strategic. And so they're, but they're sort of complementary. I'm going to attempt to uh, differentiate the two. Uh, imagine a large, complex mosaic. It's a large, complex mosaic. Maybe it has multiple themes in it. So, uh, task orientation focuses on the detail of each tile. So task oriented, task orientation would see the, maybe the gold leaf, the coloration, the gloss, the texture of each tile. Strategic thinking steps back, sees the whole mosaic, simple enough to do, but very critically notices or is able to see the intimate interrelatedness of all the tiles and how they make up, comprise the theme or the pictures in the mosaic. Um, sometimes just conversationally, I don't know if you've heard this, especially in, a, in like a corporate setting, um, they'll talk about like a strategic approach being or a strategic perspective being a high-level view of a problem or situation, high-level, you're seeing the whole thing. Whereas um, task-oriented or tactical thinking is sometimes regarded as a lower-level view of things. You're sort of focusing on, in on particular uh, attributes or features of this larger landscape. Um, and uh, I'll try some analogies. These are analogies. Um, task orientation, uh, we'll call it tactical thinking, is to strategic thinking 
as ethic is to value. I'll say that again. Tactical thinking is strategic thinking as uh, ethic is to value. Tactical thinking is to strategic thinking as knowledge is to wisdom. And I'm going to introduce this, and this kind of ties back with the previous two uh, um, sermons in this series. Tactical thinking is to strategic thinking as small T truth is to capital T truth. Requires a little bit of explanation, but we'll we'll touch on that. Uh, if you remember doing uh, if you remember doing coloring books when you were a kid, I don't know if kids nowadays do coloring books. I certainly do. Uh, task orientation means coloring inside the lines. You remember how critical that was? I don't know if it's the Gen X thing that it was like a big deal. It's like you got to get the crayon right up to the line, and then you, if it just goes a little over the line, then you get a mark off. And so task orientation is, is all about getting just inside that line, coloring inside the lines. And I don't know if people can relate to that or not. I'm sorry. Um, okay. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll point out, I don't have it in my notes, but um, there is a profession in which it, it's very rare, extremely rare, where you will find both capacities present to a large degree in the same person. That is, a person who can think effectively strategically and a person who can, who can be very effective tactically. It's very rare to find that, actually. Um, but there is a profession, and it's not science, it's not a scientific profession. I'm not here to, um, to, to solve my profession, but um, judges, believe it or not, uh, jurists, uh, especially in the, in the Western world, because you can imagine, because of the way like uh, Victorian or Napoleonic law is set up, the cases are about like this larger overarching um, collection of events. And so uh, a jurist has to be able to see that, see the interrelatedness of all the events, but also has to be able to, to focus in on minutia. <clears throat> okay, so question. Um, where do all these organizational process come from where? Rules, regulations, laws, administrative systems are ultimately tactics. And this is critical. This is a critical point. And we're going to visit this, and God willing, if you invite me back for uh, part four in the next sermon. Um, rules and procedures are supposed to be manifest manifestations of an underlying value. Values are more abstract than ethics. Uh, ethics derive from values. Ethics derive from values. You can say that values are meta-ethics. I'll give you an example. So, um, suppose someone gives uh, $100 to uh, the home, uh, Los Angeles Homeless Mission or something. So, this is an act. They give 100 bucks to the Homeless Mission. So, uh, a lot of people would say, myself included, would say, you know, that, was, that person is ethical. That was a moral thing to do. That was an ethical act to give money to people in need. However, step back, look at the whole, whole mosaic. If that person that gave that money fundamentally values, remember, values the well-being and welfare of other people, of fellow image bearers, if they're a believer, then there's no ethic or morality here. This giving is simply an outflow of the value. That person may not even be thinking about being ethical, right? If you care about other people, then you just give. It's not an... It's just of something you do. It's a natural outflow of that value. <clears throat> okay. We haven't really talked about technology. 
I mean, certainly there was technology in the episode with the grocery checkout line because you had the conveyor belt and you had the whatever, the reader, the card reader and all that stuff. Um, we've really been focused on is call what Jacques Ellul might call organizational technique. And technique is a particular type or collection of processes, organizational technique. You can imagine that technological technique, as much as organizational technique impresses um, protocol and procedure to society, technology does the same thing. We haven't even introduced that layer to this discussion. Um, conscription to technological process is new because technology is relatively new. It's something that we've experienced, say, depending on what you call technology, say, since the Industrial Revolution, which was whatever, I don't know, 300 years ago or so. Um, so conscription to technological process is new, but conscription to organizational process is not. So what we've been talking about, this whole indoctrination to procedure and process, it's been known and talked about by politicians and philosophers for thousands of years. When the prophet Daniel was born, Solon, S-O-L-O-N, I don't know if you know the name, it's pretty esoteric, um, and I'm not an expert on Athenian history or whatever, Grecian history. Uh, S-O-L-O-N, Solon, he was known as an Athenian lawgiver, was uh, about 30 years old, as a generation back. And much of Solon's intellectual legacy is colored by an awareness of what we've been talking about, organizational process, and a grave disdain for it. As formalized societies evolved, or evolved, whether uh, city-states, city-states in Salon's time, or nation-states in our time, societal values get canonized. The values of the peoples get codified into laws, and as a society becomes more featured, uh, does more and more things, takes on more and more projects, um, the regulatory canon expands. Um, and just like in Salon's world and essentially all the civilizations that have come prior and since, um, modern society is undergoing the same transformation. Um, in, in this transformation, the underlying value is being replaced by the procedure that is intended to manifest that value. And this has been observed, actually, by a lot of people, even in modern times. And certainly it's been observed in academia. There's in academia, like collegiate academia. But this also is um, K-12 stuff, too. Um, I, I've spoken with plenty of people in, uh, the, in K-12 education and the theory of education. Um, and this has been going on for decades. And what his educators have noticed is a steady decline over, say, since the 50s, 1950s, 1960s, in students' capacity at strategic thinking. Because all st students really are required, uh, the only thing that's really required of them now is just the process. Okay, this is how you study for an exam. This is what's going to be on the exam. If you get a problem that looks like this, you do this, step A1, step B1, step C1. If you get a problem that looks like this, you do step A2, B2, C3. So the students are becoming themselves inculcated with this procedure, educators have noticed this, and they're trying to marshal a response to this, to this phenomena. Also, you, it just so happens to be that some of the greatest strategic thinkers um, have been uh, military leaders throughout history. Eisenhower, um, certainly Alexander the Great, has been written about quite a bit. The, their strategic capacity and the military, believe it or not, not just in the United States, but many militaries throughout the world have noticed the exact same thing. That um, and about 
approximately over the early literature starts in the 60s and 70s concerning this, that new recruits, they're finding just don't have a natural proclivity towards strategic thinking. And so what they've had to do is in order to have the ascension program so that recruits can work their way up in the classic uh, uh, you know, hierarchy of, of the military, they've had to synthetically impose these leadership programs. The military, United States, military, all the armed forces have imposed these really strict leadership programs to try to get these recruits, people, because, you know, all the generals and the colonels are going to, um, the admirals are going to eventually retire and they have to be replaced by someone. They have to make sure that the next person who's filling those shoes has this great strategic thinking and can deal with you know, you can get into it, it's a conversation all into itself. You know, the battlefield, the complexities of the battlefield, the intimate interrelatedness of all the pieces on a battlefield. And so they've had to actually go through and, and these very sophisticated leadership training programs to get these people who are coming in, working their way up through the ranks, to give them that strategic thinking. So it's almost done synthetically because it, they've noticed, um, like I said, academia and the military have noticed that they're just not there organically. Strategic thinking just doesn't exist organically in a lot of the students. And I'll also make another point. This sounds almost a little bit political, but it's come up now uh, because we're, we're kind of in this really protracted election cycle, evidently. And um, this pay gap, this idea of the pay gap, you know, you see uh, executive, high-level executives. People use the word CEO, but it's not just CEO. Any high-level executive, a lot of these high-level executives, especially at these big large companies like Unilever or something, these guys, they'll, they'll make maybe 20, 50, maybe even more times more money than, say, um, the person who's answering the phone or greeting people at the front desk. And so people um, common with socialists will say, this is, this is an outrage. How can this possibly be? Well, think about, think about it like this. I mean, if you have a public, if you're on the board of a publicly traded company, or for that matter, if you're just a shareholder, right, do you want to spend eight figures to get uh, an executive to lead some division? Obviously you don't. Obviously you don't. That's, you just, you're just not giving money away. However, if you consider what we've been talking about and you realize that this capacity to think strategically, which is essential in an executive, is becoming so rarefied, you have no choice because you've got this small pool of people that can execute a strategic plan for your company. There may be, you know, just less than 100, 200, maybe less than 1,000 people in the entire world, and you've got to go try to get one of those guys into your company, you've got to fork over a lot of money. Because they've got a lot of people, they've got a lot of suitors that are pounding on their door to try to get them to lead whatever their company's division or whatever. Um, Leo Gura, I don't know if you're familiar with the name, he, he's um, among, he does a lot of things, but he's a leadership coach. Um, he said recently in a presentation, one of his presentations, that he thinks that the typical person these days spends zero percent of their time thinking strategically. Okay, I want to say we're getting pretty close to finishing up here, if you're wondering. Um, this is not, my, my presentation is not at all a condemnation of procedure. It is not, it's not even a critique in the sense that I'm not pr professing to offer any new perspective or any new dimensionality to this topic. This is a topic we all know about. It's just not something that comes up in typical conversation. <clears throat> and I, I should also point out in fairness that uh, it just happens to be kind of a side effect of the age, the process-driven age in which we live, that many institutions are starting to develop special process, processes that... Uh, help people who are not good at task-oriented thinking interact with their business or d interact with the process. Um, 
so what are the consequences of all this? Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds this sounds very simplistic, but it's actually I would offer that it's actually fairly powerful and fairly possesses a lot of truth. Indoctrination of process can lead someone to believe and evidently does lead people to believe that the answer to things is found in the process itself. So, in other words, you just take care of the process, you do the process, and you've completed, that's your engagement with something. You just do the process. But remember, remember, I mean, one of the fundamental tenets here is that the process is a manifestation, it's supposed to be a manifestation of an underlying value. And there's plenty of examples of this. And I, I, I mean, you think about taxes, like tax for a social program, where you're supposed to give to people who are in need, but um, evidently people don't do that, so they create all these tax laws, right? So those tax laws, these rules and procedures are manifestations of this value of trying to take care of people who need it. <clears throat> um, it also, it very much, it, it's insidious, and it, and it's so much so that it may not even seem, the importance of the examples I'm about ready to give may not even register. Um, as much as like the news, like the way people communicate, you get news, however you get news, whether radio or television or podcasts or whatever, uh, print. Um, the language of the news is almost entirely processed now. It communicates at the process level. So, you, so typically, um, if you just listen to the news, it will start to become very evident to you, but I'll give you just a trivial example. Um, like you will hear maybe, uh, and I could probably think of a happier example, but you'll hear something like, um, uh, overnight there was a, a three-car pileup on the 101 freeway. I shouldn't say the 101. Uh, the one, 210, because that's a long ways away from here. A 210 freeway, and uh, there were four fatalities. And uh, then they'll say uh, the CHP uh, believes that alcohol or racing may have been involved. Okay, at that point... Now, right, what's, what's happened? Someone colored outside the lines, okay? And I'm not advocating racing or drinking and driving, but that, to us, we know that's coloring outside the lines. That ends the story. That's the end of the story because now we can assign culpability. That ends the story. Someone colored outside the lines, and that's it. We can move on to the next story. So it's just about the procedure. Um, and Noam Chomsky has pointed this out. People have mixed opinions, I know, at this church about Noam Chomsky, that just the way that information is disseminated, especially through the mass media, just doesn't provide really a forum for talking about values, kind of talking about the actual essence of what it is that's important to us. It's just not designed that way. So that's all we get is just procedure. We get process and rule. Um, you may also, it's not typical, but you may also hear a news story where um, it'll, there's this, on the 210 freeway, there's the pileup. Uh, however many, I said earlier, four people uh, perished. Um, and then they'll say the CHP does not suspect that racing or alcohol was involved. And then right there, you just like, oh, the, what's the reaction? It's like, and I'm, I'm not any different. I'm not on a soapbox here. Um, my reaction is that, oh, what a terrible accident. Everybody appeared to have colored inside the lines. Doesn't appear anybody broke the rules. It's all about the process. So, of course, in both cases, you know, people died, but that's how we get our information packaged. We get our package so that it talks to the process. And I'll also point this out um, pretty close. I've noticed the same thing with the same-sex marriage debate. One of the things I, I, I find fascinating about this is, and it comes from both sides, it comes from opponents and proponents, that it seems like the whole discussion now is about 
the, they want the, the law. They want the procedure. It's like you hear, okay, we want the law to recognize this union. And then, and then, and then the uh, opponents will say, no, we do not want the law to recognize this, the, this whatever article, this, this event or whatever. So it's about everybody, every time you hear about this, with the exception of maybe some like wild anecdotal appeals to emotion that you'll hear about if they, if they do a protracted story, it's always about the procedures. Like, you can't have the law. We want the law. We want the, we want the procedure. No one ever talks about vows or commitment or um, dedication. It's completely off the table. Okay, what's the point to all this? Uh, wouldn't it be spectacular if I, if I stood here on this elevated pulpit and I proclaimed once and for all that the Bible has a secret code and that that secret code is to abolish all procedure? And that's certainly not what I'm going to do that, because it's wrong. The Bible does not have that secret code. And also, if I did, I mean, after all, if I did say that, I would just be offering another procedure. Um, we need to remind ourselves, this is very basic stuff, this is 101 stuff, that God's creation exists independently of any process or rule or regulation that we may attempt to ascribe to it or to which we may seek to conform it. God's living letter to us contains examples and parables. Most all rites, traditions, even icons that we fashion from these are ultimately our own contrivance if we fail to continually pursue our understanding of the difference between the small t-truths, the little details, the minutia, the procedures and the rules from the capital t-truths, the values, then we're going to fail to see them in God's word and in God's creation. Okay, I'm going to give uh, three fairly brief scriptural examples that are intended to hopefully illustrate the small t-truth, the capital t-truth. In other words, the underlying value and just the, the procedure, sort of like you can talk about like the worldly approach to something where it's just about the minutia and the sequence and the protocol A, B, C, and then God's, we talked about this last time, the, the value, right? Uh, coming to know God's will, valuing your neighbor, valuing your fellow image bearer. There's very basic values, and there are, I and it's easy to do. You can just take a Bible, flip it, and, ba and almost just put your finger to a page, and you'll get something where you can flesh out the, uh, something that delimitates or dichotomizes the small T truth from the capital T truth. <clears throat> in, uh, I'll start. This is a very brief one. Um, chapter 12, uh, speaking of the prophet Daniel, um, this is part, this starts back at the beginning of chapter 10, the book of Daniel. This is Daniel's revelation. I do not want to divest you of all the context and the meaning of what's really happening here because there's a lot going on. But I thought that this was a really interesting, it's just two verses and it speaks quite literally to exactly what we're talking about right now. And I'm going to be reading from the Common English Bible, the CEB. Starting at verse 3, chapter 12. Those skilled in wisdom will shine like the sky. Those skilled in wisdom will shine like the sky. Those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and always. But you, Daniel, must keep these words secret. Seal the scroll until the end of time. Many will stray far, but knowledge will increase. Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 23. Remember, the little truths, the worldly truths, the little mutable Rules that may spring up from one particular group of people and then reoccur or get refashioned by another group of people and the larger will of God. 
Someone is asking Jesus. Someone said to him, Jesus, Lord, will only be a few be saved? Jesus said to them, his the group of people, make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. Many, I tell you, will try to enter and won't be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open the door for us. He will reply, I don't know you or where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will respond, I don't know you or where you are from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. Admittedly, a very cryptic, kind of odd passage. But if you start looking, what's being asked? Who's that? What's being asked? The content of what's being asked? You have basically God who is dedicated to redeeming his creation. And someone asks... Uh, how many people are going to be saved? John 18, starting in the middle of verse 33. This is my, this is, this one just, in my opinion, just oozes of what we're talking about now. You've got just a high level view. Look at the mosaic. Think about who's conversing here. Okay, this is very, very well known exchange. Pilot, God. Okay, you have the ultimate bureaucrat or an archetypical bureaucrat, and you have God redeeming his creation. So what kind of conversation are they going to have? Starting in the middle of verse 33, again, uh, this is John 18 from the Common English Bible. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own, or have others spoken to you about me? Pilate responded, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your nation and its chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, My kingdom doesn't originate from this world. If it did, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't have been arrested by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom isn't from here. What does Pilate say? So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. I was born and came into the world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice. And then what does Pilate say? What is the ultimate response? What's truth? What's truth? It doesn't even matter if you really think about this and meditate on it and pray on it. It doesn't even matter if it's rhetorical or not. Right? Is he just dismissing it? Is he just making fun of it? What's the, uh, you just completely belittle truth. you got a politician, a bureaucrat, that's looking to see what he did wrong, what rules he broke, and God says, this is not the program, bro. This is not what I'm all about. And just What's truth? Okay, a really quick exercise, and that's it. <clears throat> um, this, this is actually a little bit of a semantic trick. Um, one of the easiest exercises you can do is to identify the purpose of everything, everything you own, everything that you may encounter in an urban situation or wherever you are. And and just for the sake of hypothetical, however you want to visualize it, um, you can imagine uh, like someone from outer space that's never been to Earth before lands in front of you and doesn't know anything about the the world, but evidently can speak English for the sake of the hypothetical. And... um, and once you get over the shock of all that, so 
Now, this person's got some questions for you, or if you like, if that's a little bit too odd of a, a scenario for the sake of a hypothetical, imagine a small child, and, and uh, you're asked, um, points to your, your, your feet or your shoes, and say, what, what, what's the purpose of those? And you go, oh, my shoes, yeah, you see, I put these on my feet, they protect my feet, I can walk around, uh, they offer, offer protection and comfort for my feet. They uh, point to your glasses you're wearing, and you say, oh, yeah, I use these to correct my vision, I can see the world clearly with my glasses. Uh, they point to your car, and it's like, what is, what is that big contraption over there? What is the purpose of that? And say, oh, that's an automobile. I can get in the automobile, and uh, I, my friends and stuff, and it transports me from one location to another. I can get from one place to another. And they point up, and they say, point to power lines. What are the purpose of those? Oh, those are power lines. Uh, they take uh, their conduits to take uh, energy, electricity, to the businesses and the residences, and uh, so people can run refrigerators and air conditioners and so forth. It's the easiest exercise in the world. Everything has a purpose. So, so the space alien or the child or however you fashion it in your imagination for the sake of the hypothetical says, oh, I get it. Yeah, everything that you have, uh, ha- everything here has a purpose. And, so, and you're like, yeah, obviously. And, 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 and so um, the, the, the person says, uh, the alien or the child says, okay, well, I got one last question for you. What's the purpose of you? How would you answer a question like that? What, what are you doing here? Let's pray together. Father, people talk about being spiritual. They talk about the difference between a regular day-to-day life and a spiritual life. This is some, as if this is some high-minded, lofty undertaking or enterprise that we have. pursuit of your will and understanding your will and understanding the values that you have told us about through instruction, through example, through actions of violence by your hand. They're telling us something and they're telling us over and over again. It's very much it's the same message over and over again, but um, sometimes I know that I have a hard time hearing it, but it's the same values you tell us over and over again. And it's not about being spiritual. It's just about pursuing your will. And it's not about a particular alternate dimension of ourselves necessarily. It's just about our pursuit and understanding you and just listening to what you tell us. Father, on this memorial weekend... This is a day tomorrow which we can meditate and maybe undergo or take on some particular tradition, a family tradition or an activity or something, but um, you've given us something very, very special and it's very unique. We're very grateful for the country and the place, the friends and the people, the institutions, procedures or not, Help us to have grateful hearts and help us to have hearts that are appreciative of almost unimaginable sacrifices that others have made that we may benefit. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.